Jesus fulfilled 109 prophecies when He came the first time. And anyone who thinks that is an accident knows nothing, absolutely nothing about the laws of probability. Prophecy is proof positive that Jesus was God in the flesh. Stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. I am delighted to have two colleagues with me again this week. The first is my former associate evangelist, Dennis Pollock. Dennis serves now as the founder and director of Spirit of Grace Ministries located in McKinney, Texas. It's an evangelistic and healing ministry that's aimed primarily at Africa and India, and we're glad to have you back here in the United States. Well, thanks, Dave. I love being with you and all the wonderful (laughs) folks at Lamb and Lion. Well, thank you. And uh, also, my other guest today is our newest staff member, Nathan Jones. Nathan serves both as an evangelist and as our web minister. He's on the website eight hours a day answering questions about Bible prophecy and assisting people in defending the Christian faith, praying for them, all kinds of things. Everything. All kinds of interactions. So, if you have a question, you send it to Nathan. He gets all the hard questions. (laughs) Now, every year at Christmas, I am reminded of the remarkable prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus and how they substantiate His deity and the faithfulness of God. In this program, we're going to take a look at some of those prophecies. The first that came to mind are those that established the general time period when the Lord would appear. Tell us about those prophecies, Nathan. I'd be happy to. Dave, there's two of them. It's Genesis 49 and Daniel 9. Okay, well, I tell you what, let's take them in order and let's begin with Genesis, uh, what was it, 49? Yes. 49. Okay. okay. The verse I have in mind is Genesis 49:10, which contains words spoken by Jacob on his deathbed to his son Judah. Jacob said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, the term Shiloh was recognized by the Jewish rabbis as a messianic title. So, the term scepter refers to the judicial power of the nation. Thus, this prophecy is saying that the Jewish nation's judicial power will never be lost before the Messiah comes. But Nathan, uh, didn't the uh, Jews lose their judicial power uh, during the Babylonian captivity about 500 years before Christ. Well, Judah's national sovereignty was lost, but they never lost their ability to have their own courts and judges during that time. Okay, so then the loss of the judicial power must have been during the time of the Romans. Exactly. Uh, It was during 7 A.D., the Jewish Sanhedrin Council had actually lost the ability to pronounce a death penalty. Well, you know, Nathan, that's remarkable because the Messiah had come 11 years earlier when Jesus was born, say, in uh, 4 B.C. Mm-hmm. And so, Shiloh had arrived shortly before the scepter departed, just as prophesied. Exactly. Well, Dennis, tell us about the other first coming prophecy, the one that's contained in Daniel chapter 9. Okay, well, it's a pretty complex prophecy, so let me just summarize it. The prophecy was written during the Babylonian captivity. Basically, what it says is that the Messiah will come and be killed 483 years after an order is issued for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That order was given by the Medo-Persian ruler Artaxerxes, and 483 years later, Jesus entered Jerusalem to be crucified. You know, Dennis, that is absolutely amazing, and the world, of course, would call that a coincidence. (laughs) They might call it a coincidence, but the truth is that when you have these kind of prophecies and their precise fulfillment, that goes well beyond the realm of coincidence. That 
would be a God incidence. That is historical events that are orchestrated by the hand of Almighty God. I like that term, God incidents. You know, I, I would agree, Dennis. And you know, I spent seven years cataloging the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the first coming of the Messiah. And in that process I discovered a total of 109 separate and distinct prophecies that were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. 109! And folks, a science professor by the name of Peter Stoner has calculated the odds of just seven, seven of those prophecies being fulfilled accidentally in the life of one person. He concluded that the odds are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. And that's the number one with 17 zeros after it. That's 100 quadrillion, about 10 times the size of our national debt. Have you ever pondered the odds represented by this phenomenal number? Now, you know, I have never met Peter Stoner. In fact, he's gone home to be with the Lord. But I know he must have been a good guy because he uses the state of Texas to illustrate the meaning of one in 10 to the 17th power. Here's what he says. He says, just conceive of, of, of the odds you would fill the state of Texas knee-deep in silver dollars with one of those dollars having a black check mark on it. Then you'd take 10,000 bulldozers and let them just kind of uh, mix up the silver dollars really, really good for 10 years. And then you would blindfold a guy and turn him loose in that sea of silver dollars. And the odds that on the first draw he would reach down and pick up one of those silver dollars with the black check mark on it is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Well, you're right, dude. That's just beyond the realm of possibility. That's why some people try to argue that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies on purpose. But most were incapable of being purposeful and being self-fulfilled. For example, consider the two we just looked at concerning his birth. How many of us have been able to control the timing of our birth? And not only the timing, the same is true about the place of His birth. Oh yeah, that's right Dave. That brings us to one of the most important Bible prophecies concerning Jesus' birth. And you can find it in Micah 5.2. Well I'll tell you what Nathan, before we read from Micah, let's uh, take a moment for a song. A song by Jack Hollinsworth of Acts 29 Ministries.
you, Jack, for that beautiful song. And now, Nathan, let's go back to you and uh, take a look at Micah 5, verse 2, which speaks of the birthplace of the Messiah. Sure thing, Dave. The passage reads as follows. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. This prophecy written 500 years before Jesus' birth specifically names a town where the Messiah will be born. Yes, it does, Nathan. And folks, it does it more precisely than most people realize because there were two Bethlehems in Israel at that time, one in the north near the Sea of Galilee and the other in the south near Jerusalem. This prophecy says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah, meaning the Bethlehem near Jerusalem. Let me illustrate it this way. If I were to ask a person where he was born and he said to me, Springfield, I'd have to ask, well, which Springfield? That's because there's a Springfield in almost every state of our nation. We're talking here, folks, about very specific prophecies, not the kind of vague and indecipherable prophecies that characterize the writings of false prophets like Nostradamus, so-called prophecies that are written in such linguistic mumbo-jumbo that they can only be understood after the event, and then they can be applied to numerous events over and over again. Before we leave the prophecy in Micah, I'd like to point out something else it says that is very important and which is often overlooked. Beginning with the latter part in verse 2 and continuing through verse 3, the passage says, From you, Bethlehem, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now, these verses make it very clear that the Messiah will be divine, that he will be God in the flesh, for these ver verses say he will be the one who has existed eternally. And folks, this is not the only prophecy that affirms the divinity of the Messiah. Another can be found in Isaiah 9, 6 where it says the Messiah will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. And let's not forget that last week when we focused on the scriptural evidence of the virgin birth, we took a look at several prophecies that indicated the divine nature of the Messiah. Like the one in Genesis 3:15, which said He would be born of the seed of woman. And the one in Isaiah 7:14, which said point blank that he'd be born of a virgin. Folks, there are many other details in the Hebrew Scriptures about the birth of the Messiah that were prophesied long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. For example, the prophet Balaam mentioned that a special star would mark the Messiah's birth, and that's exactly what happened. And Solomon, in one of his Psalms, stated that the kings would send the Messiah gift. The New Testament tells us that those gifts were brought by Persian wise men. Hosea prophesied that the Messiah would be taken into Egypt, and that is exactly what happened when Jesus' parents fled Bethlehem due to the threats of King Herod. And Herod's subsequent slaughter of the children of Bethlehem was prophesied by Jeremiah. The New Testament also contains many prophecies about the birth of the Messiah, and in a few moments we will take a look at those. We want to pause for a moment in our study of Christmas in Prophecy to introduce you to a very valuable Bible prophecy study resource. It is this publication which we call the Christ in Prophecy Study Guide. You know, it took me seven years to produce this guide. My goal was to catalog every Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament concerning both the first and second advents of the Messiah. But the prophecies are more than just catalogued. They are arranged analytically by categories. Regarding the second coming prophecies, most people do not realize it, but there are many more prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures about the second coming than the first. These prophecies are outlined in this study guide in detail and are placed in chronological order according to the sequence in which they are most likely to happen. 
I recently spent another five years completely revising the guide and expanding it to include the Messianic prophecies contained in the New Testament. The guide was then republished in an expanded second edition. The guide runs 150 pages in length. It has a special binding that causes it to lie flat for easy access. It contains charts and diagrams, and it contains both a topical index and a scripture index. This is the ideal handbook and study guide for any serious student of Bible prophecy. It can be yours for a gift of $20 or more, including the cost of shipping. Call the number you see on the screen and ask for the Prophecy Study Guide. And as a bonus, we'll send you a copy of a special publication entitled, Are You Sweating the End Times? It contains a verse-by-verse exposition of Psalm 2, which I consider to be one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible concerning the second coming of the Messiah. Again, just call the number you see on the screen and ask for the Prophecy Study Guide. It and the Psalm 2 booklet can be yours for a gift of $20 or more. And now, Let's return to our study of Christmas in Bible prophecy. As Dave said before the break, in addition to Old Testament prophecies that were given hundreds and even thousands of years ago before the Messiah was even born, the New Testament contains a cluster of prophetic statements that were made shortly before the birth of Jesus. The first was given by the angel Gabriel to Zacharias, the priest who was to become the father of John the Baptist. And Gabriel told Zacharias that his barren wife Elizabeth would conceive a son to be named John, and that this son would serve as a forerunner of the Messiah, preparing the hearts of the people for the Messiah's appearance. Gabriel next appeared to Mary to announce that she would be the mother of the Messiah by the power of the Holy Spirit. He told her that her child's name would be Yeshua, or Jesus in English, meaning God's salvation. He also said the child would be divine, that he would be the Son of the Most High. The next prophetic words come out of Mary's mouth after she became pregnant with the Messiah. Luke records a glorious song which she sang to Elizabeth. In the song, Mary prophesies that her son will scatter the proud, bring down the rulers, exalt the humble, and fill the hungry. And three months later, Elizabeth's husband, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit when his son John the Baptist was born, and Zacharias was also sang a prophetic song. Referring to the baby in Mary's womb, he proclaimed that God had raised up a horn of salvation for the Jewish people. He then declared that his own son would be called the prophet of the Most High. And he prophesied that his son would go before the Lord to prepare his way. Zacharias concluded his song with one of the most beautiful poetic prophecies concerning the Messiah that can be found anywhere in the Scripture. Here's what he said, Because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. The next prophetic song of celebration was sung on the night of the Messiah's birth when an angel appeared to the shepherds of Bethlehem and proclaimed, Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Messiah the Lord. That angel was suddenly joined by a multitude of angels who sang a triumphant chorus, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. The final prophetic song related to the Messiah's birth was sung by a righteous and devout man of Jerusalem by the name of Simeon. The Holy Spirit had come upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. He was given that glorious privilege 40 days after the Messiah's birth when the parents of Jesus came to the temple in Jerusalem to dedicate their baby to God. Simeon took the Christ child in his arms. He thanked the Lord and then he sang, 
My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Folks, the bottom line is that the fulfillment of all these prophecies in the life of one person, Jesus of Nazareth, is proof positive that he was who he said he was, namely the Messiah of God. Yes, Nathan, and folks, God's faithfulness in fulfilling each of these prophecies in detail is also significant because it gives us assurance that He will likewise faithfully fulfill all the prophecies He has given to Christians regarding the soon return of Jesus. God has made some great promises to the church. He certainly has, Dave. And that's why Paul wrote that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's yet to be revealed in us. And likewise, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul wrote, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the mind of man even conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. And one day very soon, Jesus is going to appear in the heavens and take the church, both the living and the dead, out of this world. And on the way up, we're going to receive glorified, immortal bodies that will never age again and never again feel any pain. And after the tribulation, we will return to earth with Jesus to help Him reign over the earth. And we will see this world flooded with peace and righteousness and justice as the waters cover the sea. And Nathan, those are only a few of the glorious promises that God has made about the future. Folks, we can be assured that God will be just as faithful in fulfilling those as He was in fulfilling all the promises He made about the first coming of the Messiah. And now, let's pause for another song by Jack Hollinsworth of Acts 29 Ministries.
Jack, that song was a great blessing. And now, folks, we want to return to one of the prophecies we considered earlier. It's the one that was given to Mary by the angel Gabriel when he informed her that she had been chosen by God to be the mother of the Messiah. It is recorded in Luke 1, beginning with verse 31. Nathan, why don't you read that for us? Okay. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom there will be no end. Now, folks, this magnificent statement contains seven promises. Four of them relate to the first advent of the Lord, and they have thus been fulfilled. Let's consider those four. The fulfilled prophecies are, number one, Mary will conceive and give birth to a son. Second, his name will be called Jesus. Third, he will be called Great. And fourth, he will be called the Son of God. But Dave, what most people don't realize is that Gabriel's statement to Mary contained three other prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled. Those three unfulfilled prophecies are these. First, he'll be given the throne of David. Secondly, he'll reign over the house of Jacob. And thirdly, there'll be no end to his kingdom. Folks, I call these three promises the forgotten promises of Christmas because they are not taught by most churches in Christendom today. That's because most churches take the position that Jesus will never return to this earth again. That is called the amillennial viewpoint. The amillennial view is based on the supposition that the Bible does not mean what it says. To substantiate the viewpoint, its proponents are forced to spiritualize Scripture. Thus, in their interpretation of these three unfulfilled promises, they convert the throne of David into the throne of God, and the house of Jacob becomes the church. They then conclude that the promises have been fulfilled in the current reign of Jesus from His Father's throne over His church. Now, folks, there is no doubt that Jesus is currently reigning from His Father's throne over His kingdom, the church. But to identify that reign with the one promised to Mary (laughs) takes a great leap of imagination. The throne of David is not the throne of God. The throne of God is in heaven. The throne of David is in Jerusalem. Jesus Himself uh, clearly differentiates between the throne of God and His own throne in Revelation 3.21. In that verse, Jesus says that He will one day allow believers to sit with Him on His throne, just as His Father has allowed Him to share His throne. Folks, Jesus is not on the throne of David today. He is sitting at the right hand of His Father on His Father's throne. He will occupy the throne of David when He returns to earth to reign from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Nor is the church the house of Jacob. This is an Old Testament term for the children of Israel. The church is never referred to in the Scriptures as the house of Jacob. The Bible teaches that a remnant of the Jews will one day accept Jesus as their Messiah. And this will occur at the end of the seven years of terrible suffering called the Tribulation, or the time of Jacob's trouble. 
Now, when Jesus returns at the end of that time of suffering, the Jewish remnant will be gathered to the land of Israel and will be made the foremost nation in the world. Jesus will then rule over the house of Jacob. Another important point to keep in mind is that the current church kingdom is not an everlasting kingdom. The church age kingdom will end with the rapture of the church. The church kingdom will be followed by the millennial kingdom when Jesus will reign over all the earth from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That kingdom here on this earth will last 1,000 years. The final eternal kingdom of Christ will be established on a new perfected earth. Well, folks, why can't we just accept the promises made to Mary to mean what they say? The first four meant exactly what they said. Why must the last three be spiritualized? The only reason for spiritualizing them is to force them to conform to some preconceived doctrine. Folks, I believe God knows how to communicate. If God had intended to promise Mary that her son would reign from heaven over the church forever, he would have said so. Instead, he reaffirmed to her the promise he had made so many times throughout the Old Testament through the prophets there that his son would reign from David's throne in Jerusalem over Israel and that he would be given a kingdom that would last forever. If the promises God made to the Jews did not mean what they said, then how can we be sure that His promises to the church mean what they say? I believe God says what He means, and He means what He says. And I would agree wholeheartedly, Dennis. Folks, during this Christmas season, I am going to praise God for sending His Son to die for my sins. But I am also going to praise Him for the fact that He has promised that He will soon send His Son again to fulfill the forgotten promises which Gabriel made to Mary. The church may have forgotten those promises, but I thank God that He never forgets a promise. Amen. Greetings to all of you, and on behalf of all of us here at Lamb and Line Ministries, I would like to wish you a very blessed Christmas. I'm David Houck, Dr. Reagan's grandson. When I was a child, he wrote this book for children and dedicated it to me and his other grandchildren. The book's title is Jesus is Coming Again. My parents read this book to me many times when I was a preschool and elementary age child. It taught me about the wonderful promises God has made to all believers concerning the future. This was the book that introduced me to the word Maranatha. This is the only book about end-time prophecy that has ever been published for children. It starts with the rapture of the church and continues through the end of the millennium to the beginning of the eternal state in the new Jerusalem on a new earth. As it tells the story of end-time events, it focuses on the positive promises of God, like the promise that we will receive new, immortal, and perfected bodies, that the blind will see, the deaf will hear, and the lame will walk. The book is printed in full color and contains dozens of beautiful illustrations like this one showing the marriage feast of the Lamb and this one showing the second coming of Jesus. It even has a coloring page at the end. This book is printed in a large size with a very durable cover. It runs 28 pages in length and in the back it has a special page for parents, uh, one with scripture notes and the other with teaching tips including suggestions about how to use the book to evangelize your child. You can get a copy of this book for a gift of $10 or more by calling the number on the screen and asking for the children's book. This would make a wonderful Christmas present for your grandchildren or children. Again, just call the number on the screen and ask for the children's book. It can be yours for a gift of $10 or more. You can also order the book through our website. Just go to the website at the address you see on the screen and click on TV Offer. Now, as we say goodbye to you and the old year, we want to welcome in the new year by saying, Merry, Merry Christmas, Christmas and a blessed, blessed new year. 
Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 